Welcome to the Vintage Church Podcast. My name is Matt, and I'm the lead pastor at Vintage Church. We're so grateful that you would take time to lean into a teaching from one of our weekend worship gatherings. Each week, one of our pastors opens the Word of God with a relevant message in the hopes that you are inspired to live and love like Jesus. We invite you now to open your heart and mind and lean into the Word of God. Guys, we are in part four of a series that we're calling The Letter. And if you haven't been able to hang out with us in the last few weeks, man, go back on the Vintage Church app, go to our YouTube channel, go somewhere and catch up because it's just been cool to watch God work. Number one, can I just say thank you for the way that that you're getting excited about God's word. We're getting messages and I'm hearing from people since we started January and did this thing that we call released in the word, watching people dive into the word. And I think it's pretty cool that in 2022, I'm even actually watching people walk into church with their Bibles. And I brought my big Bible today, so y'all in trouble. Like the bigger the Bible, the harder the preacher going. I should have brought a big King James Bible, then we really would have got into it. Because it feels good enough for Jesus, right? But we have been walking through Romans together, this amazing letter written by the Apostle Paul, not to a church that he planted, but to a people he was impressed by, a people that he had heard about over these years, what God was doing in Rome. And and apparently, like, there was something that happened at Pentecost that, that took root in the lives of the people, the citizens that took Jesus back to Rome with them and the church is alive and well and it's thriving and Paul's like I would love to come hang with y'all y'all but I'm in some trouble because I just keep getting myself in trouble because I keep talking about Jesus no matter what that I don't really care what people say I don't care if it's gonna cost me I don't care if I get arrested I'm gonna proclaim Jesus and who he is and what he's done because Jesus is more important than anything this world could do to me y'all with me this morning it's gonna be fun And so we've been walking through this letter where Paul's just pouring his heart out, man, and unpacking the gospel. To me, in in a way like he doesn't do in any of the other gospels, to me, I feel like he's writing with the kind of passion that says he knows, I I don't think I'm going to get there. And just in case I don't get there, I want to make sure that I say everything I need to say. I want to eliminate doubt. I want to eliminate confusion. I want to make sure that you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ as clearly as possible. And in in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, it's like this powerful verse, this pivotal verse that has become a pivotal place in different points throughout the history of the church where he says, the righteous shall live by faith. And we've been leaning into that word, righteous. Because I know, like for many of y'all, those are the kind of words that kept you from coming to church. Because pastors would use these words that seemed really high and haughty and hard to understand. And, and it was just be like people like preaching up here and we're down here like, what is this dude talking about? And we, we, can't, we haven't been able to find this proper balance of really rich, beautiful, doctrinally thick theological terms and just watered down, diluted nonsense. But righteousness, and maybe the reason why the word righteousness kind of causes some of us to pull back a little bit is because the only righteousness we've been exposed to is the self-righteousness of people we grew up going to church with. The ones that thought they were better than everybody else because they had the nicest navy blue suit and the best peppermint in their pocket. (laughs) And so that word, like there's just like an aversion to that word. But y'all, this is a beautiful word. It is a word when you know it truly, when you understand its, its, its implications for your eternity. That, that this word righteous is simply means that God has made a way for you to be in right standing with him. 
that in and through Jesus Christ and only, look at me, only in and through Jesus Christ is humanity restored to right standing with the one who created us. He says, I've learned that the righteous, they live by faith. That this righteousness that we get with God, it doesn't come by following the rules of religion. And because Paul knew that. Paul would tell you, y'all, I tried that. I was as religious as, I was the uber religious guy. I kept the law. I was trained in it. I followed it. And, what I, and I was so convinced that the way to God was through my religious ritual that when the church was born on the other side of, of the cross in the grave and Jesus started getting well known and this gospel started to spread, Paul was convinced that it was so contrary to his religion that he was killing folks for it until he met Jesus. When Jesus himself, Paul didn't come to Christ with the testimony of another. Jesus walked on the road to Damascus and said, bam, hey, what you doing, dude? And he said, who are you? And he says, I'm the one you're persecuting. And when the dude you thought you were dead shows up in front of you, stuff changes. It changes. And he says, in this gospel, the right way to be made with God, the only right way to be made right with God is revealed that we are made right by God's grace through faith, by the grace of God displayed in Jesus Christ who paid our sin debt so that we could be made right with God and trusting in that what he did is enough and is for us is how you are made right with God. And if you don't make that decision, you'll experience something else that's revealed in the gospel, the wrath of God. And I know that's not a popular word, I'll put that word on the screen. Y'all like, I thought this was a different kind of church. Can I just say, this is the kind of church that preaches the Bible, the truth of God. And from Genesis to Revelation, God is love, but God is also wrath. And knowing that God is a God of wrath makes his love even more amazing. Come on, somebody. Knowing what we deserve versus what we actually get because of Jesus if there's good news, there must be bad news. And to understand the bad news makes the good news even gooder. It's to know that like the wrath of God is what we deserve, but God doesn't give us what we deserve, does he? Because you know why? He gave it to Jesus instead. That the best picture of the love of God and the wrath of God is the cross of Christ. It is the picture of both things, is it not? It's his love and knowing that he willingly went there for us so that the debt could be paid, but it's also the wrath of God because he poured it on Jesus instead of us and he took it himself so that we could have life. And the reason why all this had to happen is because we talked about this a few weeks ago. Humanity made a really bad exchange. That Paul says the reason why salvation had to come is because there was something we needed to be saved from. That humanity made a bad exchange. Paul said, the way Paul puts it is, humanity made the conscious, willing, intentional decision to exchange the truth of God for the enemy's lies. And that we, even though creation and all these things point to God's existence, we ignored it, we resisted it. That even through what's known as general revelation, even in, in creation, it has to make humanity wonder there's a God. Man, in the last week since we, since we changed times and everybody went crazy like we ain't never done this before, 
But I saw on y'all stories posting those sunsets. That was so pretty. Like, uh, I hate this time change. Ooh, look at the sunset. <laughs> but if, if you don't see the art in that, and it calls you to believe in an artist that must be creating it and painting it by his own hand. But he says, no, like we, we made an exchange. The truth of God for a lie. Not letting God be God, but deciding we could be God. Not letting him make up what's standard, what's beautiful, what's good, and thinking that we could do that in and of ourselves. And because of that, we stepped into what is known as another word that's not on the screen, but it's a word we have to recognize as a reality, sin. You didn't make mistakes. You didn't make bad choices. We sinned. We sinned. And that sin separated us from God. But the gospel is the reality of Jesus came in and he, see, the, the reason why sin is so serious is because it separated us from God. But because of what Jesus is, there's another word, we have been justified. That's another word that maybe you didn't know until the last few weeks. And it really means the way you kind of parse it out, just as if I'd never sinned. That because of what Jesus has done, when you believe in him and trust in him and accept his sacrifice and take on of your sins, confess those, repent from them and believe in what he did, it's just as if you had never sinned and you are restored to relationship with God. Thanks be to him. Testify somebody. That's good news. Y'all about clap next time. We'll, get, we'll be there. And see, Paul has spent these, these first four chapters trying to help his readers understand this. That the pathway to salvation is not through all the things that you used to think it could be. You can't earn your way through it. You can't work your way to it. You can't be good enough. You can't follow enough religious, religious rules. It, it was true. Like Jewish people, I know you had the law. You can never keep the law well enough to, to, to fix what sin has broken. You can't be good in order to be, to be made righteous. You can never be good enough in the sight of God. That's the bad news. The good news is Jesus was good enough. And even, okay, Gentiles, like you've, you've found all these other different gods and you've made up all this different stuff because you knew there was a God too. And you thought, you thought there was a bunch of gods. So everything you saw, the sun must be there. There's a sun God. The ground must be there. There must be a dirt God. There's a horse over there. There must be an animal God. I don't know. Like all these different things. But no, it's, it's, it's through God. And he reminds us and he tells this story. Jasmine unpacked it last week of Abraham that Abraham was considered to be right with God, not because of anything he did, but because of who he believed in. It was credited to him as righteousness because he had faith in what was to come. He was looking ahead to the event that we are looking back on and going to celebrate here in a few weeks. And so Paul has said, this is how you're saved and this is why you need to be saved. And then in chapter five, he begins the transition of here's the beauty of it. Here's the benefit from being saved. Here's now what you're afforded because of this salvation. And that's where we're gonna pick up. So go to your Bibles, grab it, go to Romans chapter five. And I'm, I'm just gonna read the first 11 verses. If that's okay with everybody, I don't wanna be that church where the preacher reads one verse and then talks for an hour because I think what God has said is more important than I could ever say. Y'all can say amen to that. It ain't going to offend me. <laughs> Romans chapter 5, pick up with verse 1. Y'all ready for the word of God? Say amen. It says, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through faith, through him by faith, into this grace in which we stand 
And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. Proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he who was given to us. Verse 6. See, while, while, we were still, while we were still helpless, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a, a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. Verse eight, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. And I love that last word, reconciliation. That's another word that's a big word that maybe you're not familiar with or maybe you're hearing for the first time. But it's this concept, this idea that we have been, we've been brought back to peace again with God. That we have been reconciled. He opens that verse in verse one. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we also have access through him by faith into his grace. Those are two things that you need to understand, the beauty and power of them. We have peace with God and access to God. And the reason why the word reconciled there is because it's a returning to something we once had. Because you do know that there was a moment for just a moment, and we don't even really know how long it is with the way it unpacks the creation narrative, that we had peace with God and full access to God here on this planet before sin messed it up. I love the creation narrative, which is why when people try to deviate from it or destroy it, there's so so many deep theological implications if we throw that stuff out. That God formed humanity, not because he needed us, but because he wanted us. And he lived in relationship with us. And I always wonder, I wish we knew more, like what was that like? Adam and Eve just hanging out with God, watching sheep and thinking, what's that over there? And he was like, I'm going to call that a sheep. And I'm like, good call. But then sin enters the world. And you see this relational dynamic immediately shift. Have you ever noticed? Go to Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three. This is immediately following, nearly immediately following sin in the world. It says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And so the Lord called out to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, you don't want to play hide and go seek with God. God didn't ask that because he thought they were lost. But in this moment, you see, God, 
It says God came down looking for them. Number one, aren't you glad that even though we sin, God comes looking for us? I imagine what, but before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve would stroll in the evening breeze with God and, and God was returning for that same relational dynamic. Look at me. From the beginning, God has demonstrated his desire to not be some distant deity unknown by his people. He has always wanted relationship with us. And sin severed that relationship. And Paul has been trying to help us to understand the only way to restore it, the only way for us to be brought back into peace with God and to have access to God is through faith in Jesus Christ by grace. Y'all with me? Say amen. That sin separated us. That yeah, we are all God's children in the fact that we are all created in his image. But we are missing out on the inheritance afforded to those children because we remain as enemies to him. And we are only made in right relationship to him through Jesus. Y'all with me? If you go into John chapter 1, John's gospel, he opens his gospel with kind of pointing to this fact that that's through Jesus that we're really brought back into the fold as children of God. He says in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who are born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or the will of a man, but of God. Did you see that? Leave, put that back up, guys. Verse 12. It says he gave them the right to become children of God because of what Jesus has done. That Paul says, hey, hey this benefit, this rightness, it means that, that you now, not the peace, look at me, not the peace of God, peace with God. That's an interesting distinction. That the peace of God comes from peace with God. But he's saying we're at peace with God. We're restored to what he wanted in the beginning. Right, intimate, close relationship with him. But I, I need to just say a couple things here before we move into the next things that Romans says. Because how we talk about the relational dynamic we have with God, to me, is really important. And I'm not trying to be that stick-in-the-mud kind of guy, but there's some things that we say about our relationship with God that even though it's well-intended, I fear could develop some real poor theology. Jesus is not your homeboy. Like, I understand what we're saying by that. And, and even though we talk about being friends with God, that means that, that like, we're friendly with him. We're, we're, we're good. Not that we're, like, buddy-buddy. Because see, understanding the lack of, the misunderstanding of relational dynamics is the cause for a lot of missteps in the authority of our culture. Like parents, look at me, you are not your kid's friends. And some of y'all need, that's, y'all came for that sermon right there. Like I want to be friendly with my kids. But my daughter's sitting right here, I am not your friend, I am your father. And say amen if you know. That's an important distinction. I mean, we, we, you in my love, you ain't on my level. <laughs> and it's the same way with God. You are in his love, but you are not on his level. When he says you are made right with God, you are ushered into the throne room, throne room, but you don't get a seat with him. You sit at his feet and you worship him. He is your authority, your God, your creator. And sometimes he is not your buddy. He is something so much better. He is your father. 
A better way to describe this relational dynamic would be master and servant, not friend. Does that make sense? Do we all understand why this is really important to understand? Because if we start to think that we're on God's level, we fall back into that place of what he says is negotiable. Which is another reason why you're... Anyway, I won't get on that parent-kid thing again. (laughs) Another thing I think we need to be reminded is what got us there keeps us there. Because I don't think there's any confusion, even in most churches, of how we get saved. (laughs) But then it gets muddy what some churches teach about how we stay saved. And I know that's a touchy thing, and I know it's difficult, but you didn't do anything to earn it, and if you now start thinking you gotta do some things to keep it, it can get really weird. That grace is the door that got you in, and and grace is the ground in which you are planted. Now don't misunderstand me. Salvation is not by your effort, but it is evidenced by your fruit. Y'all with me? Salvation is not the byproduct of your effort, but it is evidenced by your fruit. Because when you, Jesus really gets a hold of your heart and you give your life to him and surrender to his authority, things change. Come on, somebody. And I know that's a tension that we have to live in. But I know that some of us, like, we get saved and then we get in these churches and then we start, well, for you to be saved, you got to look like this, talk like this, wear like this, dress like this, sing these songs, do these things, carry this Bible, do all this stuff. And it's just like, wait a minute. <laughs> that's a difficult tension. And it's one that we're going to talk more about as we walk through Romans in the next few weeks of understanding the fruit of that. But... It wasn't on you to get it. It ain't on you to keep it. You didn't earn your way in. You don't have to earn your way, your, the right to hold it. And does that make sense? Y'all, y'all with me? And I think Paul is trying to help them to understand all these things. And we love that fact. We love, verses 1 and 2, we love that we can, we, can, we can boast not in our works. We can rejoice in the fact that we've been made right with God and there's benefit to that. I get that, but then he says some things in verse three and four that's a little bit harder to swallow. Yeah, rejoice in the fact that you've been made, you have peace with God. Rejoice in the glory of God. But verse three, and not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions. Say what? Or maybe your your version says, rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. It's weird that in the same set of verses, Paul says reconciliation, and then just a few verses later, he also says affliction. Because it seems like reconciliation and affliction are things that are hard to coexist at times, especially in their view and understanding of God. He says we rejoice in our afflictions because to be saved is not to be absent of worldly suffering. Maybe you need to write this down. The gospel makes us right with God. It does not make us immune to suffering. The gospel makes us right with God. It does not make us immune to suffering. And I know there have been moments or maybe some well-intended things that preachers have said that you just accept Jesus and everything gonna be good. And then you accept Jesus and you're like, I still got bills I can't pay. My marriage is still in trouble and my kids are still crazy. I don't understand what happened. 
We have to come to terms with this. And what Paul is trying to say is something super important. And the fact that he says rejoice in our affliction, there's some of us that like we, we push back to that or we misinterpret that that says God wants you to be happy in hard times. So it's like life sucks, I'm so excited. <laughs> that is not at all what he's saying. He's not saying that we enjoy our pain, but we have a different perspective that allows us to embrace and endure it. Don't misunderstand. When he says we boast in it, it's because we, again, it's that boat. We can boast in our suffering because we know something that the other people that don't know Jesus don't know, that suffering is temporary, it's not permanent, that suffering can produce things in us that are powerful because the, the, the linchpin of our faith is Jesus on a cross. So the thing that gives us most hope is the suffering of a man named Jesus. So that changes things for us. It gives us a different perspective on pain. And I know it's easy to talk about pain when you ain't experiencing it right now. Am I getting real in me? Yeah. Because you know that. You have those people where you're in that season, they say, well, you know what the Bible says? Like, shut up. Of course I know what the Bible says, but right now I don't want to hear it that you embrace this suffering, but can we all just be honest for a moment? That there are things forged in pain that cannot be formed any other way. I see a bunch of heads, not, like, like I, yeah, I testify. There are things forged in pain that cannot be formed any other way. And now I'll be honest with you, the things that have been painful in my life, I don't want to go back and go through them again, but I'm glad I made it through them. Because I know what I needed, things that Ashley and I went through in our marriage, things that we went through trying to have kids, things that we've gone through in our church, like all those things. And like, I don't know how I would have learned the valuable lessons that sure my faith now had I not walked through those things then, testify somebody. It's part of it. And this is a concept that was seen all throughout Scripture. The people that brought us the New Testament, the people that brought us all of the Bible, were no strangers to suffering. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it says, You rejoice in this, that even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result... And praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That there are things forged in suffering that can't be formed any other way. And look at me, there are things revealed in seasons of suffering that can't be known any other way. You don't know how much faith you have until it's tested. Come on, somebody. You don't know how much strength you have until you're forced to use it. When he talks about this endurance, like you don't know if you're really following Jesus in pursuit of blessing or really in, in pure, authentic belief until when you follow Jesus and following Jesus doesn't produce anything of any earthly blessing in your life. And it's just hard and it's difficult. Affliction actually reveals motivation. Will you still follow even when you can't see the benefit? Will you still trust him even when you don't think you see him doing anything? Will you still be faithful to him when being faithful to him actually produces the exact opposite of what you desired would come? Yeah. 
And the man who writes us this letter, Paul, he lived it, bro. (laughs) That's why he said in Philippians, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul says, I know that the hope I have in Christ, that the hope that I have in this salvation that I've been talking to you, I know it will not disappoint me. And it will not disappoint you. Romans chapter five, verse five says, this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That there's been many times in my life I've hoped for something that disappointed. I've either hoped for it and it didn't come or I hoped for it and I got it and it wasn't all I thought it would be. This ain't like that. He says, this hope that you have in Jesus, this hope produced by him, through the, in the, even in the, the, the midst of the hardest, most difficult, frustrating times. And let me just remind you, do not confuse what God allows for what God causes. He says, it will not disappoint us. And the scriptures are littered with Paul reminding us of the power of God and the presence of our suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Such beauty. Such beauty. And you know, it's interesting what affliction does. I want to use that word because that's the word it uses in my translation I'm reading today. It's so good. Affliction has one of two outcomes. It will either create doubt or generate hope. When you walk through hard times, it will either create doubt in the goodness of God, doubt in the promises of God, doubt in the reality of God, or it will push you so into intimate relationship with him that you dig in more than ever, learn to understand him more than ever, and trust him more than ever, and build your hope. That's true in this relational dynamic, and we've seen it play out in this relational dynamic. When, when a couple or a family, a relationship goes through a hard thing, either on the other side, y'all come out stronger together or further apart. We've all watched it happen. And it all depends on what you do in it and through it. And he's saying, we're gonna, we're gonna build this. And then Paul transitions into that, that next part of Romans 5. And I think it's very intentional because what I think Paul wants to do is solidify the assurance of the salvation of those who are reading. Can I teach you that word today? We've been teaching all these words, righteousness and wrath and justified and reconciliation. Can I teach you another beautiful word that I think is a deeply scriptural word and a word that Paul is trying to give us in this moment? Assurance. Assurance. That he wants them to be sure in their salvation, secure in it. Because sometimes when we go through hard times, it can shake the faith that we have and the salvation we once thought we believed in. Come on. And he's wanting to just build that assurance. And see, we, we have no idea the perspective that the people of, who were originally reading this letter probably would have had. 
Again, he's writing this to people in Rome, many of which did not grow up in the Jewish tradition, did not know the Old Testament, the prophet, the law. Yes, he's, he, he's, he's speaking, speaking to this mixed group of people. But you gotta think these Roman Gentiles, these non-Jewish Roman people that were coming to Christ, he has to completely deprogram their theology. Because for years, they were convinced that anytime anything bad happened, it was because they had made God mad. And so if something wasn't going right, God was mad. And so it was on them to do something to make God unmad so that it could be fixed. Y'all with me? Say amen. So can you imagine them hearing this? Wait a minute. You're telling me that reconciliation with God and affliction in life can like happen at the same time because that's different than anything that we've ever believed. That we thought that the presence of problems in life meant the absence of peace with God because that was their mindset. If something, going, if something is going bad, then that means we made God mad. If, we, if, if everything was going good, then God was cool, we were cool, everything was fine. But if I'm experiencing something bad, it's because I made God mad and I have to do something to fix it. Do you see he's trying to deprogram their theology to say, no, 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 no. I know that's what you've always thought, that the presence of problems meant the absence of peace with God, but that's not the case. Don't ever doubt the peace you have with God in Jesus Christ, no matter what's happening to you. Don't ever let the circumstances of your life cause you to question his goodness, his love for you, and the right standing that you now have with him in Jesus Christ. And then he gives them the best reminder he can to keep them grounded and assured of their faith. He says, remember when and why and how you were saved. Go back with me. Man, these verses are good. Go to chapter six. He says, because remember, remember, remember that for while you were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But verse eight, but God proves his love. God proves his love, not by your current circumstances. God proves his love, not by the pain you're in now. God proves his love not by what you're experiencing in the moment. No, God proves his love that while you and I were still sinners, he died for us. How much more then, since we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved eventually from the wrath that we're experiencing right now? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we will also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. That Paul says, look, the assurance of your salvation, look at me, the assurance of your salvation is not seen in what is happening to you. It is evidenced by what happened for you. That you can, you can be assured that you're saved, not by staring at what's happening to you, but by remembering what happened for you. Before you were helpless, you were a sinner, you were evil, you were broken, you deserved nothing. And he came anyway, and he gave his life for you. So in, in this affliction, in this present moment, you stand secure in grace because of faith and knowing that he did all that for you and you didn't deserve it. So don't question it now. 
feel like so often in scripture, I look and I see that, that our, our assurance, our security is found in believing and trusting in the promises of God. And I'm reminded that y'all look at me, that we live sandwiched between two promises. The promise that was fulfilled, the promise he made in that garden when sin entered, when he said through the womb of a woman, I'll fix this. The promise of Jesus who 2,000 years ago hung on the cross for your sin and gave up his life and then defeated death and walked victoriously out of the grave. And I can't wait to celebrate that in a few weeks. We're sandwiched between that promise and the one that is yet to be fulfilled, the return, when everything will be made right and there will be no more tears or cancer or pain or brokenness. And there's sometimes, like this week, I'm thinking about like, God, I feel like I'm, I'm living that, that this life is, is planted between those two things. And can I confess, for, for much of my life, I feel like between the, the resurrection and the return, it's like living in the valley between two mountains. And it's such a struggle. But God showed me this week is, Matt, you, you gotta stop looking at it like that. That you're not living in the valley of two mountains the resurrection and the return, you're living in the shade between two trees. That it's not the dark valley between two big mountains, it's the cool, comforting shade between two trees, walking in the promises of what was and what is to come, not what exactly is in the moment. I look back and I see his son slain for me, died on a cross to set me free and I can barely even fathom that love. And I look forward to the moment where he bursts through the sky with trumpet sound and calls me home. And I don't live in the middle scared to death. I live in the coolest of the shade and I walk in victory. And the only thing that puts you in the shade is trusting in Jesus. Do you know him? Do you have him? Father, I pray that right now that your spirit would fill this room, move into this place, that God, you would have your way. And God, today we finish our time together worshiping you. And worship is not a, re it's not a reflection of our feelings, it is a declaration of your truth. And God, we today, we, before we leave this place, we declare the goodness and greatness of our God who's done all that but still has so much yet to do. And it's in that space we find hope and comfort and peace and joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Venice Church Podcast. We hope what you have just heard has inspired you to live and love like Jesus. If you'd like to know more about Venice Church or to get further connected, we invite you to visit us at our website at venicechurch.net. We'd also encourage you to download the Vintage app there you can find more resources about how to get involved and grow in your faith. You can access the Venice Church app by going to app.venicechurch.net. Thank you so much for allowing us to be a part of your spiritual journey, and we hope to see you soon.